Well, if you have your handout this morning, we're looking at the significance of the Lord's Supper. And I thought what we would do is just kind of walk through uh, this handout and look through what the Bible has to say about the significance of the Lord's Supper. I know if you're a lot like me, you, you growing up in church and, and you get, I actually always enjoyed it. I thought it was something kind of fun, kind of like get a snack in big church, I guess you could say. And uh, I always thought it was so smart that they gave you the, the, the hundred year old bread first that was really dried and then gave you the juice because you were kind of choking on it like quickly, you know, you get the grape juice to wash it down. So I was like, that was the right order. Anyway, I was thankful for that. But I didn't definitely didn't understand the significance of this until we all started studying, especially covenant theology. Um, and so as you guys know, growing up as a dispensationalist, it, I, I would say that now studying covenant theology, that the uh, that the significance of the Lord's Supper jumps off the page to me a lot more now. And because really what we are celebrating is we're celebrating that we're in covenant with the Lord. So I just thought we'd kind of start at the beginning. If you see our handout, um, we're in chronological order, not chronological order, but in, in order from front to back in your Bible. So I just thought we'd start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, in verses 4 through 10, a very familiar passage. And um, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. By the way, there's, there's a lie from Satan. So you say, where did, where did the lie of the ungodly never dying come from? You know, we talk about conditionalism. Here's this, here's this lie from Satan. Hey, you're not going to die. And, and one of the, the challenges I have every week is asking folks that want to interact with us on, online... Is, is ask them, where in the Bible do the ungodly gain the gift of immortality? Well, they never do. You say, well, where did that lie start? Why do we believe that? Well, here it is in Genesis 3, 4. Satan says to the woman, you're not going to die, verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it. It's fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband and with, with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. So this is really an important concept here. As they took of the fruit and they disobeyed, the first thing they noticed was, hang on a second, I'm ashamed of myself. Kind of like we, we talked about in Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah is going through in Isaiah 6, and he looks, remember we said that that, does anybody remember the word? Here's a little trivia question for you. Remember, it's the trace hagion, that, that three times holy that we see in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy. We see in Isaiah and we see in Revelation. That trace hagion, and we see this. And so Isaiah is before the Lord, and he says, Lord, you're so holy, holy, holy. And then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. And so as soon as they sinned, they looked at themselves and they said, oh my goodness, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm naked. And so they tried to solve it on their own. If I can say it this way for the sake of our study, they got out of covenant with the Lord and they tried to fix it themselves. So they were out of fellowship with the Lord and they said, here's the problem. The problem is we're naked. Well, that wasn't, that was a symptom of the problem. The problem was they weren't in covenant with him and they could see his holiness versus their unrighteousness. And so they tried to solve the problem themselves, and they tried to solve this problem by making a covering. Of course, this was a pseudo covering. This was not a good covering. The covering did not 
fix the real problem. The problem wasn't just the appearance of nakedness. And if you'll notice what they did in verse number seven, maybe this will have this covenantal theme running through. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. Now, a couple things that are interesting here. Of course, this should remind you of the, the offerings that Cain and Abel both brought. Remember, the offering that Abel brought was an acceptable offering. Abel brought the offerings of animals, and, and, and it was a blood sacrifice, and it was acceptable to the Lord. But remember, Cain went out, and he tried to get a bunch of fruits and vegetables and make a harvest offering with, with plants. And the Lord said, no, that's not good enough, and didn't accept it. So why? Well, it was because the plant offering didn't shed blood. And the blood offering is what foreshadowed the Messiah coming to cover our sins forever. So we see even in verse number seven that they tried to solve the problem with a covering. We do need a covering. Jesus is that covering. The covering we've talked about, this shade or this canopy or this covering that Christ provides. We see it in the book of Jonah, this 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 booth. Remember, it says that in chapter four, when Jonah's ready for them to to be tortured and die in Nineveh. They think he thinks they're going to mess up and God's going to scorch him with fire in chapter four. And the Bible says he was hot, remember? And that booth came up and it gave him a covering. It was like a plant, this big leafy plant. And he was under there and he was thankful for the shade. Then all of a sudden it withers and he's like just cursing God and just wants to die. He's like, forget this whole thing. I'm so sick of it. And God's like, really? You're crying over a plant that I provided for you. You did nothing to cause it to grow. But yet there's 120,000 people here that need me. I created them. You have no emotional attachment to the plant other than it shaded you. But you don't care about 120,000 people not having me as their savior. Like there's something wrong in that selfishness. So we see this also in the parable of the king. Remember the king go out on the highways and hedges and compel them. The marriage of the king's son. Remember the one, I'm not going to take the time to go over it because we've gone over it so much. But remember the one guy in the corner that comes to the wedding feast and he doesn't have on what? A covering. He's missing the robe. And Jesus goes over, the king goes over to him and says, hey, my friend, right? He calls him friend. Where's your covering? And the guy doesn't say anything, matching Romans 1, for they are without excuse. And they bind him hand and foot, take him out into outer darkness and cast him there where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So all of these things, these thematic ideas should be jumping off the page for a covenant theology perspective when we're getting into verse number seven. They sinned, they had nakedness, they needed a covering, tried to solve it on their own with plants. Doesn't work. So they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves coverings. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, David Chilton points out in Paradise Restored, if you remember, that this, this Hebrew phrase, that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, has been very, um, we've been misled in our culture what this means. Um, a, a really, really beautiful hymn. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've played this hymn on the piano or done it. And I had one lady actually in, in one of the churches I was in that said, if you could record in the garden, I would just be so happy. And I went and I and it went in the church. And I think it's one of the most beautiful hymns we have in the garden. But in the garden kind of gives you the imagery that Jesus is this almost effeminate, wispy, I'm just taking a, a stroll, kind of come in the garden. Hey, guys, where are you? Kind of, it's in the cool of the day. I just want to take a walk with you. And in the Hebrew, David Chilton points out that that is not at all 
uh, what we see here in Genesis 3.8, that this was a terrifying presence of the Lord. And this idea of him walking in the garden in the cool of the day and asking them where they are is actually a terrifying figure. This is the judgmental sense. And that would explain why in verse number eight, they hide themselves. I won't take the time to dive into that concept too much. But this glory cloud idea that we learn in Paradise Restored really comes into play here of the terrifying presence of God when you're out of covenant with him. This wasn't the Lord coming you know, with, with, with long Vidal Sassoon hair blowing in the wind going, guys, you want to come out and talk and have some tea? Not, that's not the imagery in the Hebrew here. This is a terrifying figure. You're out of covenant with God. It's not a good day. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's an interesting thought too, but we'll maybe for another time, they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. Verse number nine, the Lord God said to Adam, uh, called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked uh, and I hid myself. Look down at verse 21 as the story continues. Uh, and also, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made coats or tunics of skin and clothed them. The only thing that could clothe their skin in a covenantal sense was other skin. They couldn't have skin replaced with the fibrous uh, material of a plant because that's not what they're made out of. They needed an actual skin covering to cover their skin problem. And so this is the, this is the idea, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They couldn't, they couldn't you know, say you know, something else for a tooth. It had to be a tooth for a tooth. This had to be skin for skin. That's, that's judgment. That's justice. That's a, that's a righteous judgment God, a God that, that, that executes judgment in a righteous way. So he made them skin coverings for their skin. So that we see this first initial sacri- uh, sacrificial system here in Genesis chapter 3. Look at um, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, eat and live forever. So in this very first presentation in the Bible of the sacrificial system being instituted, look what's at stake. Look what happens to be there. It's the loss of life. The tree of life, they're banished from the tree of life. It's connected to this idea of the sacrificial atoning of the foreshadowing of the Messiah. And now we see him being separated from the tree of life. Of course, we're going to have the bookends of this. We've talked about this so many times about the chiastic structure. Remember that word? We talked about the chiastic structure of the book of Revelation. There's several other examples of that. There's there's a chiastic structure to the, the flood narrative. Um, remember, that means that the very first thing that you see corresponds with the very last thing that you see. And the second thing that you see corresponds with the second to last thing that you see. And it builds up until it has a pinnacle or a, 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 a switching point in the middle of the story that makes everything go to reverse. Remember, paradise lost, paradise restored. And so here in Genesis 3, you have the banishment of the tree of life. Chiastic structure would be at the very end of the story, Revelation 21, 22, you're introduced to their access to and guaranteed access to the tree of life. Paradise lost, paradise restored. So you have that structure built in. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out man, he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard 
the way to the tree of life. Okay, let's move forward in our in our study here to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's very familiar. And in fact, we have done entire sermon series on this. But this is the Passover, the Passover passage. So we're just going to real quickly look at this. Here is Exodus chapter 12. And in verse number 7, uh, here's some uh, instructions uh, the instructions for the Passover. And, and we're going to get into also unleavened bread memorial because this comes into play. So all we've learned so far from Genesis is that when sin is introduced, it requires a sacrifice to cover a skin sacrifice, not a plant sacrifice. So here in Exodus chapter 12, remember this is the last of the 10 plagues. Children of Israel are in bondage just like Adam and Eve were in bondage to, to, uh, to their sin. So verse number seven, and they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and on the, the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat of the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Bitter herbs, of course, this is talking about the foreshadowing of the bitter cup that Jesus, in fact, ingested for us on the cross. Do not eat it raw, verse 9, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire. Fire is a purification in the Bible. It's a, it's a way of seeing uh, that, that something's being purified from its sinful state. Its head with its legs and its entrails. This is everything. Verse number 10. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this is um, the, the beginning instructions of understanding what to do with the Passover, that it's the Lord's Passover. Verse number 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So this is kind of the same attitude as you want to see with the uh, the Lord going into the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, talking with them. This is the same imagery. The justice of God is passing through. They knew they were in trouble. They were out of covenant with God, and he was coming to check on them. So we're going to get into this more in the next hour. But I want you to hear this very simple phrase that will help you. Because the next hour we're going to have uh, in our teaching, we're going to talk about the covenantal structure to the book of Revelation. And at first glance, I know that seems, oh man, how boring. I can't wait to show you next hour though. But here's here's how David Chilton describes, and I'm saying that because that's one of our textbooks for, for going through that we all have access to. But David Chilton describes the book of Revelation in this sense. We'll look at it next hour. It's a covenant lawsuit. That's the book of Revelation. Hey, here's what the covenant we made. Here's what we said. Here's how you're guilty. And then here's what's going to be done about it. It's basically an attorney prosecuting the, the, the guilt of Israel by breaking the covenant. And so this is a covenantal lawsuit. And so uh, think about that as we're working our way through here, that if you're in trouble with the Lord by breaking his covenant, you'll in, incur his wrath upon yourself. And here we see this in the Passover, that both man and beast against all gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. So when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So when we see the blood of Jesus on the cross, and we have the Lord's Supper this morning, 
we're seeing that the blood of Christ is being applied to us the same way that this blood was applied to the doorpost. And when the wrath of God abides on the world, he will pass over those that have the blood applied. So this is all an imagery of Christ on the cross. So in verse number 14, he says, So this day shall be to you a memorial. And there's where we get institution of the Passover. So the Passover from this moment on was a massive deal for those that understood Hebrew culture and lived in Israel. So I'm sure we're all aware of this, but Jesus died on Passover. So this is all foreshadowing the day that Christ came and went on the cross and was killed. You say, I didn't think Christ was killed. No, he was killed, Paul tells us. The the Jews killed him. Yes, he was in charge. Yes, he was the sacrificial lamb, but they murdered Christ. I used to hear when I was young and say, nobody killed Christ. He he laid his life down. Well, it was both. They killed him. (laughs) And that's the wording that Paul used. Um, And we'll look at that in just a moment. And so it says... This is going to be a memorial, verse 14. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. Whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is a new feast. We have now Passover and Unleavened Bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations an everlasting ordinance. So there's two main things we're introduced here. The the concept of a, a lamb dying Blood being applied, the wrath of God passing over, and that's called Passover, passing over, and then this feast of the unleavened bread to remember and commemorate this idea. Let's head over to Leviticus 17 as we're working our way through the scriptures. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verses 10 through 12, a little shorter here, and uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, It says, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because remember, we just read in Esther chapter 8 a couple weeks ago that somebody could uh, become a Jew. Do you remember that? I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that the last couple weeks really talking to folks. And I just said, let me ask you a question to my dispensationalist friends. You know, who's a Jew? What constitutes being a Jew? Well, it's a descendant of Abraham. I said, well, do you think anybody can just become a Jew? Well, of course not. You know, read, read Esther 8 very slowly. Tell me what your conclusion is. I had one guy tell me yesterday as I asked him that question, he said, oh, I think that means that they just professed to believe in the things that the Jews believed in, but they weren't actually Jews. It was their profession because they were scared. And I said, yeah, but you know what the big problem with that is? It doesn't say that. It says they became Jews. That's what it says. So you have to add to the text to make it something different. So here, what's very interesting building on that idea is the Lord made provisions. This is not popular teaching today. The Lord made provisions for the people passing through Israel that were not descendants of Abraham to be a part of the covenantal structure, to be under his umbrella, to be under his shade or protection, 
to be in covenant with him. So it says, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you. Do you see that? That's the Gentiles being a part of the covenantal structure in the Old Testament. It's been there the whole time. Who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood. I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. You can really think about that as we're going through, why did Christ have to die on the cross? Well, he died on the cross because verse 11 tells you that the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So part of being in covenant with the Lord, part of uh, being in this idea of this foreshadowing of the cross of Christ, part of the instructions that they were given is to not eat blood, to not, to not consume this blood on them or the people that were strangers that weren't from Abraham to also not consume this blood. And you say, why? And that's because it, it, was a, it was a set aside idea. It wasn't for then. And Jesus is going to now introduce, I want you to drink my blood. Uh, meaning, of course, symbolically, I want you to consume and ingest me. We'll get to that in a second. All you need to know right now is this foreshadowing leading up to the Lord's Supper. He said to them, I don't want you to consume blood. So this is a set aside idea. This is, not, this is a not yet idea. Isaiah chapter 53, which is what we would call a messianic chapter, all about the Messiah is all that means. We could dive up, we could really dive in and tear this thing apart. We're just going to focus on one verse. Isaiah 53, the entire thing is about Christ, if you want to read it slowly another time. But in Isaiah chapter 53, in verse number seven, speaking of Christ, it says, He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Remember what Jesus, before um, his accusers, they would slap him, they'd mock him, they would beat him. Hey, tell us who hit you. He, he just kept his mouth shut. Why? Verse 7 says he was led. And here we have this simile. You can always recognize a simile by the words like or as. He was led as, as, as what? A lamb. As a lamb. As a lamb what? To the slaughter. We're going to learn more about that even next hour. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A lamb is one of those very few animals that as you're with a lamb, a lamb will basically do whatever you want it to do. It doesn't really fight back. A goat will fight back. But a lamb will just almost... I've heard stories of a lamb will almost just lick your hand while you just slice its throat. It just is so trusting. It just, it'll just love on you and it doesn't fight back. And that was Jesus. I mean, it about brings tears to my eyes. That's what our savior did for us. He just loved on folks and he just kept his mouth shut and said, I'm here for you. I'm here to pay this price that the father's called me to pay. So Jesus is now going to become the sacrifice that we're learning in both Genesis 3, Exodus 12. Let's jump forward now to the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 26 now, Jesus is going to bring, of course, we're skipping a whole bunch because the whole entire Old Testament is leading up to Christ's uh, incredible sacrifice on the cross. 
But in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 16, um, I'm sorry, verse 26. I didn't think that looked right. Verse 26. This is Jesus now instituting the Lord's Supper. Uh, in verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said this, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. And here's the wording, you ready? Of the new covenant. So what was he trying to teach them? Well, he's instituting, he's starting a brand new covenant. The old covenant is going to be made obsolete, as the book of Hebrews says. It's done away with and replaced with something much, much better. And it is his blood. His blood being shed as the final sacrifice, closing out the sacrificial system. So he says, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the, this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, if you've ever been confused by that verse, uh, I got something I want to show you. And when they sung a new hymn, they went out of the, the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is sitting there. He breaks this bread. He blesses it. He gives them this juice or this wine, as the Bible says, the fruit of the vine, and he gives it to them, and he says, I want you guys to drink this, and I want you to do this with it. I want you to ingest it. I want you to internalize this truth. And that's what we do when we commemorate the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is you're, you are, if I can say it this way, you're now, you're now culpable. When we do the Lord's Supper this morning, you are now culpable in the death of Christ right? That, that's our part of it is he died for you. This is on your behalf when we do the Lord's Supper. When you have this bread that you crunch between your teeth, he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. You're culpable in that. So that means as you take this, this, this cracker, basically, that I got from Publix, <laughs> there's nothing magical about it. We're not teaching what the Catholics call transubstantiation. We're not saying this is the actual body of Christ. It's a commemorative action that we do to remember what he's done. He says, do this as a memorial, as a remembrance of me. And so as we take this cracker, this our version of as unleavened bread, and it is it is made by a Hebrew company, so you know it's really legit this morning. But uh, it's got it's got Hebrew writing on it anyway. It's probably packaged in China. I don't know, but um, I don't think so. But anyway, um, but as as you take this 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 cracker and you put it in your teeth this morning, you crunch it. I want you to think through as you're doing it that if this represents the body of Christ, you're culpable because you're the one that's destroying it. You're crunching it between your teeth. Your actions broke his body. And you have to internalize that truth, and that's when you swallow. You're internalizing, I, I understand what you've done for me, that our sin imputed from Adam made your body be broken. And thank God that the Father put it in the heart of the Son to be obedient to him, and that the Son was obedient even unto death, and on our behalf allowed his body to be broken. But you're a part of it. And, and doing this this morning is you saying, your body was broken for me, and I am ingesting this truth. It's deep in me. 
the swallowing, right? This, this, I'm making it part of who I am. You know, um, Lauren, my daughter, uh, as you guys all know, has type one diabetes and, and boy, I understand a lot more about when you put something in your mouth, how it becomes a part of your, your blood glucose. Unfortunately, we know a lot more about that than we probably wish we did. Uh, a lot of knowledge, hard way to, to gain it, but we understand that when you have a carb, Man, if you don't have insulin to offset that, that, that blood glucose is going to raise real high. Because why? When you put something in your mouth, it becomes a part of your, 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 your structure in your blood. So Jesus is saying that. Here's something interesting I'll show you real quick as a quick rabbit trail. won't be too long. He says in verse number 29 something I think is very interesting. He says, But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day I drink it new with you. In my father's kingdom. Well, the post-millennialists believe in the teaching that I've given you believe that as Jesus resurrected and ascended in Acts chapter 1, as soon as he resurrected, the kingdom had, had begun at that point. Jesus was the king of the universe. He said that he has all power and all authority in Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 on heaven and in heaven and on earth. The kingdom began at that point. So here he says, Hey guys, drink up because I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine with you anymore until I drink it with you. The, who is he talking? And again, we always ask this question. Who is he talking to? His disciples in my father's kingdom. Well, do we have any record of that? Yeah, we do. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is a reference to that time period between his resurrection and and the ascension in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 10, verse 41, um, let's just go with verse 40 for context. Him, speaking of Jesus, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So this is what Jesus was saying there is a passage that used to really confuse me. That's very easy now. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, hey, guys, this is going to be our last meal until the kingdom starts. Isn't that simple? This is, the, this is our last supper before the kingdom starts. He just throws it out there because right after that, he's arrested, tried, illegal trial, crucified, and the kingdom starts and he goes back and eats with them. So literally all he's saying there, it sounds like a confusing passage, but it's so simple. He's like, hey guys, by the way, the next meal we have together, we're going to be in the kingdom. Isn't that incredible? How easy? But we, we made it so hard. John chapter 6, we're kind of working our way through, we're almost done here. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, and ooh, let me get this right here. John chapter 6, verses 43 through 58. Jesus is going to bring together a lot of the, the things we've looked at so far. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Boy, there's that phrase again, at the last day, always connected with the resurrection of the dead. That's referring to the second coming of Christ. It is written in the prophets. Now he's going to quote and bring together some of these principles. And they shall, be, shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he's speaking of himself there. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting, everlasting life. Now, here is where he pulls it all together from Exodus 12. He says, I'm the bread of life. That's me. That bread you've had all this time, that unleavened bread, that sinless bread, I'm the bread of life. He says in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So he's saying, even though you had a miracle from heaven with manna, they still ended up dying. And you're after an everlasting covenant I made with Abraham. How are you going to gain immortality? How are you going to get everlasting life? He says, that's me. That's where I come in. Verse number 51. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, speaking of himself, he will live forever. That's why in the Lord's Supper, we eat of it to commemorate this fact that we're ingesting this truth from God. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. So if we're eating the flesh of the Lord, spiritually speaking, doesn't it then make sense that he looks at every person that's a part of that process and says, you're my body. We're the body of Christ. That's what it is. It's so so beautiful. He says, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, they missed it. They thought it was transubstantiation. They thought it was reality and substance. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And look at this again. What's the result of that? I'll raise him up at the last day. Wait a second, Lord. How can you have everlasting life? And then you tell us in the next verse that you're going to be dead and you're going to resurrect those. Because that is why Jesus uses the euphemism sleep. Jesus views the death of a saint as a sleep, as a rest. Why? Because he's going to wake them up when he comes again. It's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not counting that as a total destruction. He makes this distinction in Matthew 10, verse 28 where he says to not fear those that can kill your body, but you should fear the one who can kill your body and soul in hell. And he's talking about the destruction of a soul, meaning death with no resurrection. But when a saint dies, that's why he says they're just sleeping. Because I'm going to get, hey, psst, wake up at his second coming. That's the beauty of this thing. So he's saying both here, you're never going to die and I'm going to resurrect you. See how that's seemingly contradictory terms? But to him, the death that we experience from Adam is just simply asleep until he breathes new life in us again and wakes us up at the last day, the Bible says. He says in verse 55, for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Um, as, the, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he feeds on me and I will live because of, and will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. And he makes the distinction. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, we are running rapidly out of time. We're already out of time. But in 1 Corinthians 11, I, I have to just highlight this real quickly and then we'll, we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 11 is pulling all of these thoughts together as Paul is giving warnings and instructions for our time this morning. So I have to read these as our instruction. He says, now give, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. This is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, 
When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. <laughs> what, what a great testimony, right? For there must also be factions among you, these divisions, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. He says, you guys don't come here for a buffet. Go eat at your house. That's not what we're doing this for. Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. (laughs) Kind of clear, right? Not mincing words. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same manner also he took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So what are we doing this morning? We're simply proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And that phrase, until he comes, is built in with the idea that he resurrected and that the kingdom is now and he's going to be, he's the conquering hero and he'll return again for those and raise them up at the last day. That's why at the last day was always connected with the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but let him examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks, and this is more serious now for us, so if you've tuned out, tune back in, because this is talking about our instructions for this morning. But let a man examine himself. I'm tempted to go fast because we're running behind, but we need to go slow here. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Listen, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. I don't want you to do that this morning. And how, you say, well, what, what would we have to be guilty of to do that? It says right here, not, discern, not discerning the Lord's body. It means doing it in a flippant way, not understanding what you're doing. And he says, because people are doing this without discerning the Lord's body, for this reason, for that reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That's that euphemism for death. People are dying as the Lord is cleaning up the church for mocking this institution and this remembrance. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What a concept. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not, content, may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. On your handout, I have a conclusion here. We'll read this paragraph and be done. When Adam sinned, he was cursed with the loss of life. Of course, his death. There was nothing he could do about that curse. God loved Adam. Remember, the Hebrew word Adam means mankind. And could not ignore the sin because he's holy, of course. See, here's the thing. Somebody had to die. And Adam was guilty. God wrote himself into the story and became man to take our place. He took sin upon himself and died on the cross. The father raised the son from the dead, separating him from Adam. And this is an important concept I think many people miss. 
when Jesus was resurrected, he was separated from Adam. God made him a new body. He started a new race of people, which Jesus calls simply his body. It is made up of all those who have true faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember that the body of Christ was broken for us. By the way, like I said, let that sink in when you are breaking the bread between your teeth. And that his blood was shed for us. And think on this when you ingest the wine of his blood. Because of these precious truths, his wrath will pass over you. Amen. So that's just a a highlighting. We could go on and on about this covenantal truth, but that is the significance uh, of the Lord's Supper. Okay.